Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are going to spend our time in verses 31 through 39 as we draw to a close the kind of sub-series that we have been in in the series that we're in uh, of the book of Romans. The sub-series has been our victory in Jesus Christ, our victory in Jesus, uh, with a particular focus, not just in victory in general, but what Paul seems to communicate over and over throughout this epistle, throughout this letter, and that is our assurance of that victory. Um, it, it's one thing to hear a pastor, to, to hear a teacher, to hear uh, you know, a loved one who... who you know, maybe showed you Jesus for the first time, you know, preached the gospel to you and introduced you to this, this uh, truth that you, that you live in. Uh, it's one thing for them to say, hey, by the way, you have victory. And for you to say, well, I know I'm supposed to think I have victory. I know I'm supposed to have victory. But how do I know that I know that I know that I have victory? And this is a really important thing. Um, Our words fall flat as people. I I think is is just, you know, everyday people that are following after Jesus, our words fall flat at times. But the word of God endures forever. And if we will remember that, the words that Paul writes are inspired words. Though those words are not written to us, they, they were written to the church in Rome. They are uh, written for us, okay? So there's a difference between being the, being the recipient of the letter and being uh, someone who benefits from the letter, okay? And so what Paul convinces us of is that we not only have victory, but why we have victory. And what I hope to show you today is that that victory is actually rooted in the character of God. Uh, you, so, so in this respect, you don't have to take my word for it. I sound like the reading rainbow guy, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the character of God uh, as that truth, and it's just an amazing idea. So here's, here's what we've studied over the past couple of weeks with regard to our victory and the assurance that we should have in it. When it comes to our victory, the, the Spirit of God himself is interceding on our behalf. How many of you remember this from two weeks ago? The Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. The Scripture says with groans that are too deep for words, but the Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf. Now, you might say, how does that communicate my victory in Christ, or how does that communicate my assurance? Here's how it communicates your victory and your assurance. The one who is interceding on your behalf, the Spirit of God, the Scripture says, Paul says, only and always praise the will of the Father, right? He only and always prays the will of the Father, which means that the one who's interceding for us is praying what God wants for us, and what he's interceding for us is this idea of our victory and our assurance and our peace in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing truth. I I, I love the prayer partners that I have. I love the people that are praying for me, and I don't want you to stop. I want that. I covet those prayers as, as much as you can covet things in that way. I want those things, but it is an altogether amazing reality that the Spirit of God is interceding on my behalf and that he intercedes for the will of God, and the will of God is that the people of God be victorious. 
That, to me, is an amazing truth. The next thing that we learned uh, the, the following week, um, and we paired this with two things, two things that we learned last week, and that is God is causing all things to work together for our good. How many of you know that? God is causing all things to work together for our good. Now, I just want to briefly remind you of what Paul has in view here. Uh, It is true, church, it is true that uh, God cares for the sparrow and he cares more for you. Okay, so uh, Jesus says, look to the sparrow, look, look at the birds, okay, become a bird watcher is what God is telling us. Look at, look at the birds, if he takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? So when it comes to your everyday needs, when it comes to the food that you need or the, the clothing that you wear, or when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, peace inside of your workplace or things like this, understand there's a promise in scripture for this. God cares for you more than he cares for the sparrow. Make sure you get that. But what Paul has in view when he says God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose is that God is working the trials, the tribulation, the persecution, the pain that we face for standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The pain that we face for declaring his name to the world. Okay, so Paul has perfectly in view in this that the all things that God works together are the tribulations, trials, and sorrows that you face for walking after Jesus. The reason why we've made it mean something else, or the reason why that sounds foreign to some, is because we are largely unpersecuted in the church today. In American church, at least. We're largely unpersecuted. We, we go about, listen guys, we get to worship here on a Sunday morning without any fear of reprisal. Without any worry of, of threat on our body, on our life, on anything. Isn't that an amazing truth? We should take that, we should take that for what it is. A beautiful mercy, a beautiful grace. But we often take it for granted. So since we're so disconnected with persecution, we just read what we want into the Bible at times. God works all things together for my good. That means when my, uh, when my refrigerator goes on the fritz or my car breaks down, ah, God's working it together for my good. And sometimes you're going to find out you don't see much good in the end of it, okay? It's just that your car was old and junk, okay? So you got to smile about it and just move on. But God tells us that he is causing all things to work together for our good. Now, when Paul says that, it has all of these echoes of the past. It has all of the echoes of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, the story of Joseph is that God called Joseph for a purpose, didn't he? God called Joseph for a purpose. He gave him a vision. He gave him a message that he was to declare. When he began to reveal that message, his brothers, human as they are, his brothers rejected it, okay? Not only did they just say, you're a harebrained and we don't like what you have to say, they sold the dude into slavery, okay? Now, anybody have a brother like that? You can raise your hand. I'll pray for you. Anyway, Nathan, is it Jonathan? I knew it was Jonathan. Okay, so so, some of us have a brother like that, right? I don't have a brother like that. I don't think he'd sell me into slavery. I hope not. But anyway, so the echoes of this are very amazing, that Joseph sold into slavery. At the end of this story, listen, Joseph is being persecuted for standing on the promise of God. 
He's being persecuted because he was walking in what God said he was to walk in, which was to be a ruler, to be a leader. And and so he's sold into slavery. In the end, Joseph says amazing words in Genesis 50. He He says, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. What man intended for evil, God, and some translations say this, God worked for good. So when we hear this passage, we say God causes all things to work together for our good. Make no mistake, people are going to hate you for standing for the name of Jesus. They're not going to like you. Uh, You might as well embrace this, okay? I mean, you really do need to embrace this. There's more reasons than, uh, than Jesus said it would happen. The reasons are that in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says it's through persecution that our glorification comes, right? Momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. We need to remember that. So when we face persecution for our faith, it's a good thing. Now, I'm just going to take a, side, a time out here for a second and, and share with you an observation I have yet again on the modern church. The reason the modern church is capitulating to the culture in reference to things like sexuality, in reference to things like abortion in some cases, in reference to things like how the church should be run and leadership and all of these things, the reason why the church is capitulating is because the the church despises persecution for the name of Jesus. The church has been fed a bill of goods that says, if you face persecution, you're doing it wrong. If you face persecution, you are doing it right. Now, you can be a jerk. Can you say that with me? I can be a jerk. Say that. I can be a jerk. Phil, say it out loud. It's really good. I can be a jerk, right? Your kids told me that too. Anyway, so <laughs> no, so the idea, that was bad, right? But anyway, it's okay. He, he loves me. So the, the idea is that we can be a jerk. We can stand on a street corner with signs that say, God hates so-and-so and so-and-so, right? We can do that. Or we can actually read the Bible and realize that God so loved the world, he gave his son to redeem so-and-so and so-and-so right? But the reason why we shy away from so many things is because we've been taught if we're being persecuted, we must be doing something wrong. After all, isn't Jesus loving? Isn't, he, isn't Jesus just the, the most amazing, like, hippie 70s God that we've ever seen? And, and he just wants peace, love, and Jackson 5 and all that Jackson 4, they just keep falling off. But, you know, you get the point, right? You guys need to catch with my jokes, man. It's really good stuff. But anyway, so wah, wah. Okay, but here's the point. We've got to be careful, church. We've got to be careful. We are not going along with the culture. We are standing against the tide. We are standing against the culture. Make sure you realize that. So people are going to hate you for this, and here's how big our God is. And this is what speaks to our victory in Jesus. No matter what comes your way, God is causing that persecution to work together for your good. And when I get to the end of the message today, you're going to see something the Apostle Paul says that I believe will just make your heart come alive. Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers in 180, he said this when it came to the sovereignty of God and God being able to work all these things together for our good. He said, I reject the, the, the puny God of the Gnostics. I know some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Irenaeus said, I reject the puny God of the Gnostics who has to meticulously determine all things for him to remain sovereign. 
It's a powerful, powerful thing. See, God doesn't have to play both sides of the chessboard to win. He's actually more powerful than that. He plays his side and you never win against him, <laughs> right? He always wins. He can take all things and work it together for the good of those who love him. Now, when it comes to my assurance of my victory in Jesus, that's the one I'm standing behind. It doesn't matter what people throw at me. It doesn't matter. God is working it together for my good. I can rest in that truth, okay? The third thing that we learn is that the past has confirmed all of these things. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul, by way of example, tells us a beautiful thing about God's past. He says, those whom he foreknew, the term prognosco, those whom God foreknew, it has uh, every time in Scripture, those whom God has had a previous relationship with. And in Paul's view, as well as in chapter 11, verse 2 of Romans, Paul is referring to the Israelites. Those whom God foreknew, he knew in the past. Guess what he did for them? He predestined them to be, call, be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called through the gospel. Those whom he called, he justified. He justifies by grace through faith. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Romans 8, 17. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. There is a journey in this desert life that we're living the parallels of the Old Testament to the New Testament are intense. We, being set free from our sin and death, have begun a journey through the wilderness of this life, through our exodus to the promise of God. And it is an amazing, amazing, amazing promise. Okay? So God is working that together. He's done it in the past. Why should we be afraid of the future? The answer is we shouldn't be afraid of the future. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we see this over and over in Scripture. Today, I want to connect all of these things together with the character of God. Today, I want you to see the nature of the God that we serve. You see, it's one thing for us to look at just his actions. We could say God intercedes for us, but you don't necessarily know what character he has. You could say that God is sovereign, but... What's to say he's not just a cosmic bully and he just picks and chooses and does weird things? You could say that God uh, is, is the same in the past and that he will be the same in the future, but you would ask the question, for whom? For whom? And you, and you don't know the nature of the very God that we serve. Well, today, I hope you will see all of these things through his character. You see, when God's word says that he's interceding for us on our behalf, we need to see something about his character. Now, question for you. Who prays for you? Do your enemies pray for you? Some of you are like, yeah, but listen, that's a different type of prayer. They're praying for your demise. That's a different thing, right? But when you think about do your enemies pray for you, you're going, no, that's absolutely not the case. That, that wouldn't be the case. Do you pray for your enemies? Now, be honest with me. I didn't ask if you knew you should. I'm asking if you actually do, right? Eh, sometimes, right? Right? This is just true of us, okay? But here's what I want you to see about the intercessory nature of God and what it says about his character and what it then should say about us as Christians. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Matthew 5, and he moves on through 6 and keeps going, and it's an awesome, long sermon. 
after my heart. Anyway, so, so he goes through and he gives the Beatitudes and he talks about what it looks like to, to be a, a, a kingdom, uh, you know, a kingdom person in, in God's uh, economy, in God's ways. And then at the end of chapter 5, he says this. He says, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. Now, we got a sign-up sheet in the lobby for anybody who's ready to do that all the time, never without exception, right? This is hard to do, but Jesus says this is what he wants us to do. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Then he says, as far as the world goes, they love those who love them. Everybody does that. He says the Gentiles love those who love them. The tax collectors love those who love them. How many of you know it's easy to love those who love you? You know that, okay? So Jesus says, everybody can love those who love them. But what I want you to do is I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. And this is where it gets amazing what God says next. Jesus says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you know what he just said there? He told you and I to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And then he said, therefore, in light of what I've commanded you to do, I want you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you know who Jesus prays for? His enemies and those who persecute him. How do I know that? All of us were enemies of God when when God came to save us. Every last one of us. There's not one of us that was, well, I was pretty good. God didn't really have to save me. We were all enemies of God. And guess what? God even prayed for those who persecuted him. Persecuted him. Look at what he says on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow, that's an amazing idea. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is the very character of God. God is praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf. And he is doing so even for those who have set themselves up as his enemies. And he expects you to do the same. That, to me, is an astounding idea. So what's my victory in Christ? It's sure. How do I know that it's sure? I know that it's sure because God is interceding on my behalf. What type of intercession? It is a holy, perfect, complete intercession. He loves me. Now, I do this a lot, and I'm, I find myself doing it more lately than, than I have in the past. But I want to take a second, time out. I'm going to pull a... Um, Saved by the bell moment here. That shows my background. Anyway, uh, I'm going to pull this time out so everything else pauses while I talk to those who are theologically minded, okay? I just want to share something with you. I want to share something with you because the scripture tells us that God is interceding on our behalf and it also says that he wants us to be perfect as he is perfect and that means interceding for our enemies. God is doing that. It is abundantly true, abundantly clear, that God's word says that he burns with indignation every day. I know that you didn't want to hear that, but God's character is love, yes. But it does say in scripture that he burns with indignation every day. Okay, Just keep that, if you're theologically minded, I want you to keep that in your mind. It also says that God hates sin. Okay? Scripture says that God hates sin. And contrary to popular opinion and internet memes, the Bible says, and come talk to me afterwards if you want to, the Bible says that God hates sin and those who practice it. 
which actually means God hates sin and sinners, no matter what Joel Osteen tells you. Ow! God hates sin, loves the sinner. That's what we hear all the time, right? Time out. Time out a second. God burns with indignation. He hates sin and those who practice it. But here's where the turn happens. The scripture does not say, as some in the church have contorted the the, the gospel to say, for God so hated the world, he killed his son. That's what many think the, the scriptures say. God is just up in heaven and he's livid all the time. Well, he burns with indignation every day. You've got a passage for it, right? And he just despises people and he's writing them off. The Bible says, even though he is angry, even though sin just infuriates him and frustrates him. Though God hates sin and the practicers of iniquity, the scripture said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's an amazing image of the character of God. He prays for those who hate him. He prays for those who are his enemies. He intercedes on their behalf. He wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. Yes, we can see this on one side of Scripture, but we must not miss that God so loved the world, he came here himself for us. Church, it is not good to view God through one lens. It is not good to see God only through one side of his character and not the other side of his character. To do so is to follow a false god. God may hate sin and those who practice it, but he came so that you don't have to remain. He came to redeem you and set you free. He came that you might have life. This is the most beautiful gospel in the world. There's tons of good news out there, but nothing that rivals this level of good news. The gospel is not for God so hated people, he killed his son. It makes no sense. The gospel is for God so loved his enemies, the world, that he gave his one and only son. Let's keep that firmly in our mind as we declare the gospel to a lost and dying, set up as enemies against God world. Let's remember that. He loved them enough to die for them. Doesn't matter what my opinion is. He loved them enough to die for them. So he intercedes on our behalf. God is sovereign. That's the next piece where we need to see his character. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is not only for us, he is unstoppable, church. If that's true, aren't you more secure in your victory? Are you? I think I'm, I'm preaching to a bunch of quiet people today. Are you more secure in your victory when you know that God is unstoppable? Of course you are. Because who does your security land in or rest in? Him. Not you. How many in this room are stoppable? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to prove it to you here in a second, okay? I need a volunteer, (laughs) right? So we are stoppable. God is not stoppable. He is sovereign. His his character of of this unstoppability is an amazing thing to assure us of our victory. Next, God is faithful. That past work that we talked about. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character begins to show us something that is absolutely amazing. I just... I fall in love with him more every day because in light of his character, I see 
how good he is. And consequently, I often see how horribly wretched I am, right? But that's the contrast. That's, that's what's so beautiful about him. He is so good. So let's not miss this, okay, church? So let's move on to verse 31, and we're going we're gonna to transition into these new elements of God's character. It says this. It says, what shall we say to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? What do you see about God's character right there? He is for you. He is for you. And that, that's his will. He does what he wills, right? So God is for you. And so he's acting uh, in, that, in that character. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Do you know what the implied answer is? No one. The implied answer is no one or no thing. Why do we struggle about things being against us? Why do we struggle about things like stealing us away from the Father? Why do we struggle with the, even the work of the enemy, church? Why do we struggle with that? Is the devil more powerful than God? Can he thwart what God is doing? No, Paul actually says it at the end of this chapter, and I'll, I'll prove it to you then. But we're not worried about the enemy. This is also why we shouldn't pick a fight with the devil. I know this is contrary to many of you. Don't pick a fight with the devil. The scripture says resist the devil and he will flee, not punch him in the nose. Okay? You know why? Because you'll end up like the seven sons of Sceva, naked and beaten. He is stronger than you are. He is not stronger than the God you serve. Michael the archangel is said to have looked at Satan and said, the Lord rebuke you. Are you as strong as Michael the archangel? No. So I wouldn't mess with it. I wouldn't mess with it. I would live by faith. And here's the faith you have. Nothing can separate me from the love of God right? The devil does not hold a candle to who my God is. So what can separate us? What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. But what Paul goes on to say here is an interesting evidence of his character. Follow with me. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Walk it through with me. He who did not spare his own son, back to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not for God so hated the world, he killed his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his son that we might have life, right? Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But go back to Romans 5 and look at the beginning passage of verse, verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8 actually starts this way. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As sinners, God is loving us. He is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf. He is forgiving us. It's just an amazing reality. John 3.16 and Romans 5 all communicate that God did not spare his own son, but sent him to rescue us, to redeem us, to be our propitiation. And we, we will spend time on that in the future. The next part of that verse says, but delivered him over for us all. Romans 4.25 says, he who was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus's blood purchases or wash, washes away our transgression. His resurrection purchases our justification. We are, uh, we are justified and alive because of the resurrection. You know now why Paul says if we don't believe in the resurrection, our faith is futile. 
Our faith is futile. We, we have a real serious problem. So he delivered him over. He didn't spare his own son. He delivered him over for us all. But the game changer happens in the final uh, line of this verse. How will he, God, not also with him, Jesus Christ, freely give us all things? Do you know what John 10, 17 through 18 says? Jesus says that I have the power to lay down my life and to pick it back up again. Jesus came voluntarily. Jesus came knowing what the mission was. Jesus came knowing that he was going to lay down his life to die for the sins of humanity, but he knew that he would raise for their justification. He knows what his mission is. And it is why Paul says that God with the Son gives us all things. How many of you know we believe, we live, we follow a living Savior? A living Savior. He's not dead. Okay, we follow a living savior. This is what the scripture communicates. We often read this passage uh, incorrectly. Our minds think merely in the terms of, of a ransom. And this is a biblical principle, so don't miss it. Ransom is a clearly biblical idea, but it is only one biblical idea. I want you to think through Paul actually saying, you have security because God surrendered his son the most precious thing to him. For me, if you read that on the surface, you would not come away with a greater sense of security. You would say, if Jesus isn't safe, why would my victory be safe? Why would I be safe? Because it's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying in all of this is that he he is not going to be thwarted in his mission to save you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God, and the proof is in the character of God. He self-sacrificially came to earth for you. God didn't pay somebody else to do it. God does all the heavy lifting himself. Do you understand this, church? This is a powerful reality of his character. What Paul is saying is that you should rest assured in your victory because Jesus, Jesus himself came to ensure it. Jesus himself came to purchase it. The Father and the Son are one. John 10.30 says this. For the Father to give his Son for our salvation is to communicate what God is willing to do to secure even his enemies. And what Paul says is that he's willing to give himself. He's willing to come to earth. He's willing to do the heavy lifting. He's willing to do what we cannot do in saving ourselves. And he asks for one thing in a response. Trust his work, not your own. Trust his work because you can't save you. There are many in the church today that would believe that faith is a work and it's a categorical mistake because faith is said in the scripture to, uh, true faith is to have works, which means it cannot be a work in itself. Otherwise, that's actually a uh, self-defeating statement. Faith without works is dead, but faith is a work, so just have faith. That's not, that doesn't make any sense, right? Logically, it breaks down. Faith is not a work. Your response is faith. Your response is, I trust your work, not mine, because I can't get me there. If God is willing to come and to die for each and every one of us, that we might be reconciled, how will he also, in Christ or with Christ, not give us all things? Do you realize not only is your victory secure in Jesus, but all the future glory is secure in Jesus? I'm not sure we think that. I just want to talk to you pastorally. I want to just talk to you on a one-on-one -on -one level right now. 
How many of you, with just honesty, just tell me honestly, how many of you wake up on a Monday morning and you wonder, you wonder whether or not God loves you? Raise your hands. You wonder. Come on, raise your hands. It's okay. You can raise your hands. You wonder because there's something in you that says, I'm not sure I did it right. I'm not sure I was living up to the standard. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, if God knows me like I know me, then why would he want to love me, right? Barney shared with us this morning in his, uh, in his uh, Bible study with Barney, right? That's what we're going to call it, Bible study with Barney. In his, in his time, he shared with us this, this idea that God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows your mind, and yet he still loves you. That's an amazing thing. But here's, here's the deal. We struggle with this a lot as Christians. Some of us might not be willing to admit it. But we struggle with this and we go, God, do you, do you love me? And here's the way you can become assured. You get back into his word and you read passages like Romans 8, 31 through 39 that says nothing can separate you from the love of God. Right? Neither height, nor depth, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Rest in Him, church. Do you see that? So as you're leading your life this week, I want you to, I want you to have faith this week. What is faith? Trust in His work. Stop trusting in your own. Do you know that we sin and fall short all the time? Do you know that we're just messes as people? If you don't know that, ask your wife sometime. You know, we're, we're messes as people, but the truth is that God is for us. And that, Dave, don't, don't tell her that. No, no. You're not supposed to tell it to your wife. She's supposed to tell it to you. Anyway, okay. So the idea here is that God has us secure. So on a pastoral note, I want you to know that although that struggle is real, you need to look back to his word for your security. You need to trust him for your security. God came for you. Verses 34 and 30, 33 and 34. Here's what they say. Verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Series of rhetorical questions, but let's track them down. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? A term that means God's chosen ones. Who will bring a, a charge against God's elect? Answer is no one. It is actually written in the Greek to imply the negative response. Greek language can do that. Whereas English, we often have to rely on the speaker to tell us what they imply by their rhetorical answer. Greek actually defines mood and shows us how this works. And so, will, uh, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. And here's why. Because it's God who justifies. Who justifies you? God. Can you justify you? No, you can't. The reason why some of you raised your hand and said, I don't know if God loves me, is often because we're stuck in this, this hamster wheel of trying to earn it and justify ourselves. The resurrection of Christ Jesus justified us. We cannot justify ourselves. Please hear me. So verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one, for it is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The interesting answer is God. God's the one who brings condemnation. But what do we have? 
It's back to the character of Jesus. He's praying for us. Look at what it says. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Your best prayer partner in the world doesn't hold a candle to the Spirit of God and the Son of God. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Nobody. It's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? It's God who condemns. But Jesus is interceding for you. Do you know he loves you? Like You're not happy enough when I say that he loves you. And you need to like get some smiles on your faces. Because this is game change. This is life changing. He loves you. He is for you. Wow. That to me is amazing. So he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? God is. But Christ Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The word who here can be translated as a what, just the same in the Greek. And I would argue that that's how it should be translated because what follows is a list of what's, not a list of who's. So let me read it for you my way. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, that's not a who, right? That's a what. It might come at the hands of a who, but what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, what's the answer, church? Will distress? Will persecution? Will famine? Will nakedness? Will peril? Will sword? No. Okay, so what are we worried about? Why is it that we don't state our faith in public? Why is it that we don't shout from our rooftops that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the only way to the Father? Why is it that we don't call men everywhere to repent? Because we think all those things can separate us. We're afraid of every last one of them. And I'm going to show you that the church of Rome was afraid of them too. So Paul answers that by saying this. He says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And I'm in Rome thinking, what are you talking about now? Did you have an ADD moment? What happened here? Okay, you just said, what can separate us? You listed things that can't separate us. And then you said, and that's why we're going like sheep to the slaughter. And you're going, hold on a second. What do you mean here, Paul? Paul is pointing, about, uh, pointing out what he and his colleagues are doing on behalf of the church so that they might hear the gospel. Look at what the next verse says. Verse 37. But in all these things, what is Paul talking about, all these things? In all these things, he's talking about persecutions and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The Apostle Paul says, not only does persecution not uh, separate you from the love of God, it actually causes you to overwhelmingly conquer. Why is that true? Why is that true? Because when we suffer for the name of Jesus, we will be glorified, Romans 8, 17. These people aren't like us. They don't have short-term memory loss. They don't, remember, they don't forget what Paul just said. They understood it. Paul said, you will be glorified with him if you suffer with him. And then he goes on and says, we're being put to death for your sake all day long. And not only that, when we consider these things, we realize that through them, we overwhelmingly conquer through him in Jesus Christ. Through them in Jesus Christ. Church, not only should we not shy away from persecution, we actually should be running headlong towards it. Why? Number one, because people are dying and going to hell. 
That's number one. I know some of, some of the church today wants to ignore hell or say that it doesn't exist. You're mistaken, right? You're mistaken. It is very real. We are all after people because this is a real reality. Penn Jillette, the, the famous atheist, you, you've heard me quote him before. He said, if a Christian believes in hell and that, the, and that the, rea- the reality of not accepting their Messiah will land someone in eternal torment, it is the most unloving thing in the world for that Christian not to speak up. If an atheist thinks you're unloving, you got a problem, right? So the point is, we should declare it from the rooftops because persecution, again, is not an example of doing it wrong. It's the example we're doing it right. And it is, as defined by scripture, Romans 8, 17, it is a pathway to glorification. Ready to sign up? Because we should be. We should be. And this comes down to more than just saying, I believe in Jesus, you believe whatever you want. That's the, that's the mode of evangelism for most average Christians today. Well, this is my personal conviction. I believe in Jesus, you believe in whatever you want. Is it hell and eternity? Or is it just a choice and we all die at the end and it doesn't matter? It's hell versus eternity, church. Let's take this seriously. Let's take this seriously because the Apostle Paul has just told us not only should you not shy away from persecution, but you will, if you will endure it, if you will pursue, if you will have faith and trust God, you will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved you. Look at how he started this again. He said, who will separate us from the what of God? The love of God. And then he says that it's the love of God that enables us to endure persecution and to reach glorification. It is not that that God is mean or, or a bully. It's that he loves you and he's bringing you through this. So now, the final piece to this. This is how I want to wrap up. This is how I want to wrap up. Very rarely in scripture do we have these moments where... Um, where the writer, although inspired by God, where the writer emphatically uh, states his, his viewpoint. He says, after considering all this, I stand here. I stand in this position. And the Apostle Paul gives us this. Now, there's benefit to this because there are many of you that struggle in your faith. You struggle in the, in the, uh, uh, the myriad of beliefs that are present in the world. And sometimes you just want somebody to step in and say, here's what the Bible says. Am I right? Some of you trust a pastor and a teacher and a leader for that very purpose. You want them to say, okay, there's a lot of mud here, but I want to tell you what the truth is. Two weeks ago, Nathan Daniels was in father's group and he, he said, this is a real struggle for me. He said, because it feels like there are as many versions of belief as there are churches in the world. How many of you feel that way? There are as many versions of belief as there are churches in the world. And we just, we wrestle with this idea. And Nathan said in, the, in Father's group, he said, all I want is for us to just agree. I just want us to come to an agreement, right? It was one of those, can't we all just get along moments. And I think he might even said that. So is that right, Nathan, you here? Anyway, okay, can't we all just get along? He wanted to find points of agreement. Now we had a lot of uh, views on answering that. Number one, we're people right? And we're learning this as we go. How many of you are still humble enough to admit that? We're learning as we go, right? We're growing in this, so it doesn't, there, there are things we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, but we're learning and we're growing inside of this. And his point is, I just want to know, well, one, take, take heart. We're people, we're discovering this. 
Number two, there is one truth. God's word is it. It declares what his truth is. So, so don't worry. We can look to it. We can argue about its points, but we can look to it and we can fight for it. But there are moments where the people like Nathan Daniels are simply crying out for a pastor to say, can you just tell me your thought on this? Not, I just want your opinion, but tell me what your conviction is based on your study, based on your past, based on what you have looked at. The Apostle Paul provides that for us. So in all of this, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for I am convinced. And right there, I take heart. Maybe I should take heart in what God has said before uh, and, and not worry about this. But I take, I take uh, an extra level of heart when the Apostle Paul says, here, I'm convinced of something. You need to listen up. Okay? If you never hear this, you need to hear a pastor say this. And this pastor right now is the Apostle Paul. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate, what's it say, church? Us. Uh-oh. Paul doesn't say, I'm convinced. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come will separate me from the love of God. Good luck for you. Paul does the most amazing rhetorical thing here and he knows how to use I and we and us and they and you and all of those things. And he says, I'm convinced of this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you have to imagine the church in Rome just sat there and went, because here's the peace that you have. The inspired, inerrant word of God says nothing can separate you from the victory that you have in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Because the Apostle Paul is standing on a pedestal saying, I'm convinced of it, and so should you be. But I'm convinced of it for you because I know the character of my God. I know who he is. He is better than we are. He is, he is overwhelmingly able to conquer even when chaos comes our way. So who is God according to all of these pieces that we've seen? God is for us. God is perfect. He's complete. He's interceding on our behalf. God is sovereign. He is faithful. He is unstoppable. God is love. And that love displays itself in self-sacrifice for you. God came for you. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.